0: Welcome all to the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is the first episode of our Fall 2015 season, episode 165. I'm David Grubbs, Assistant Professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. And with me today is Nathan Gilmore, Associate Professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you this fine day, Nathan?
1: I am doing pretty well. I'm enjoying classes so far, which often is the case a weekend. Uh, yep. and. Yeah, just kind of rolling along.
0: Excellent, excellent. Also with us is a gentleman who I have never actually had the honor to disre- uh, introduce on this on this podcast. Uh, Danny Anderson, assistant professor of English at Mount Aloysius in I'm not sure where Pennsylvania. Where Crescent. where are you? Creston. <laughs> Creston. We are like between Johnstown and Altoona.
2: If you can sort of throw a dart in the middle, we're right there.
0: Okay. All right. Well, I I won't throw a dart there because I don't want it to land on you. (laughs) But we'll imagine that that happened. Welcome, Danny. Thank you. It's good to be back. Excellent. Well, we have a good chunk of things to talk about today, but before we do that, have we got any sorts of announcements, um, goodies to come, stuff we want to draw attention to in other areas of our podcast universe or blog or whatever?
1: Well, to save Danny from having to toot his own horn, uh, I'll just go (laughs) ahead and announce that the first full episode of the Sectarian Review is online. It's a good conversation. Uh, They dig into some... Really good questions of vocation. There's an excerpt from a sermon in there, which I didn't anticipate. Uh, it's a fun Excellent. little show. Go to iTunes, subscribe, or go to ChristianHumanist.org and click on the microphone picture. That'll lead you to a page where you can listen, download, do all sorts of groovy things.
0: Excellent. Uh, Thanks, excited man. to I see it there. All
2: those kind words.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, we've made the sectarian review happen. Um, maybe we can work on our Christian Humanist Windbreakers. <laughs> Excellent. Well, but but you know, all joking aside, dear listeners, by all means go go check it out. We're we're always adding more and better awesome content. Um so all of you with really, 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 really long commutes, you're welcome. <laughs> uh transitioning to our topic elegantly, because I couldn't think of another sentence to say to do that. Um Today we're talking about offices. Uh, I recently moved into a new office after transitioning jobs, um, putting books on the shelves, hanging things on the wall, but also, ner- you know, learning where the closest restroom is, and you know, all those sorts of things. And that made me start thinking about offices in general. Um, most of us, you know, on, on this uh, on this podcast on this podcast have offices and have worked in other kinds of office settings. And it's a sort of normal thing in our contemporary culture that I don't, I don't think we question much about. Um, uh, the normalcy of offices seems to be pretty much accepted, I think. Um, but that's what we're here for, right? We're here to help you question normalcy. So we'll start with Nathan. Um, usually we start this kind of episode with a historical sketch of our topic so how far back can we really go when talking about the office? I mean, it seems like a very modern thing, mm-hmm. but I imagine, like most modern things, it's less modern than we imagine.
1: <laughs> certainly, certainly. And this is one of those things that uh, gets more curious the further back you go. Uh, huh. So rather than going too far back, I'll start with the etymology uh, officium in Latin uh, generally means responsibility or duty. Uh, and this is one of those things that I, I like throwing at my Christian college students uh, when they try to tell me because they've discovered you know, the connection between linguistics and theology that there's no such thing as a church building, that the church is the people, <laughs> not the building. And you know the first thing I tell them is uh, you know go back to your old English, uh, because, in fact, the earliest attestations of the English word refer to the edifice and the congregation. Yeah. But then what I tell them is, you know, OK, so when I leave here, uh, I'm going to go back to a roughly rectangular space uh, where I keep my books and also where I sit to grade papers. Uh, you know, but of course, we all know that my officium, my duty as a professor is to teach the young. So, uh, will I be going back to my office now, or won't I? <laughs> so, you know, it's it, it's one of those things where, you know, I mean, you can talk about what uh, the true nature of the ecclesia of Christ is, and you can talk about what the real officium of a professor might be. Uh, I don't think that should, you know, edit geographic place categories out of our vocabulary. That's just me. So, you go back to the Roman Empire, uh, what you get is a strange situation where a lot of times you have free people, Libertas, uh, who own slaves, often educated in Greece, uh, and often ethnically Greek, uh, who basically do a lot of their reading and writing for them. Mm. So it's one of those things where, you know, the liberal arts as we imagine them uh, certainly have their roots in Rome, but you do have a situation where you have uh, in a very straightforward sense, menials, slaves, who are doing the secretarial work for the wealthy. You fast forward a little bit into the late Roman Empire, the, you know, the early Frankish period, what often gets called the Middle Ages, uh, although <laughs> they didn't know they were the Middle Ages. Um, <laughs> you get a situation where literacy becomes a lot less common. And so you have uh, spaces that are designated for reading and writing, usually in royal courts and monasteries. Uh, So here's where you get the scriptorium, here's where you get the office of the clerk, uh, all sorts of things that, uh, you know, become the office or the officium or the duty of those people who are educated. Uh, And really, I mean, this is where, you know, with the writings of Boethius and later on with the work of Charlemagne and Alfred the Great, uh, you get what I would call the university conception of liberal arts. This is the Mm. arts of reading and writing and making arguments and so on and so forth. And so you have dedicated spaces, but you also have a great deal of prestige attached to them. Now, I'm going to fast forward in an unethically uh, random way all the (laughs) way to the tail end of the Industrial Revolution and really the point in economic history where Factories and the places where things are mass-produced start to move away from Europe and North America into among other places Southeast Asia Um, Here you get really a transformation of those North American and European economies so that you have Two two parallel phenomena one of them is mass literacy. So in other words, you have an entire middle class of people Uh, who are educated to read and write. And second of all, you have basically a vacuum that opens up when actual physical production moves elsewhere. Uh, So this is where you get uh, what we think of as the sort of modern office space, uh, you know, culture starting to, you know, come into being. Uh, It really is a function of, okay, we've got, Wealth being generated on other continents, but as far as where to move what and when to move it there, you still need a class of educated people here to make that happen mm-hmm. and you know the the modern office culture, if you will, is is tied up with the you know the rise of of the information economy certainly, but also the service economy so that people don't necessarily go to the plant anymore to work, but they go to the office to work. Uh, and it's also in this generation, and I'm probably going to rant about this later, so I'll just uh, foreshadow the rant here. Uh, this is where preachers stop having studies and start getting offices. Mm. So, Danny, I, I just, you know, made uh, a a pair of thousand-year jumps there. What would you add in between those jumps?
2: <laughs> well, nothing in between. I'll I'll try and tack some stuff onto the end uh, of that because uh, I think uh, David talked about. Modernity, this being sort of a, we think of it at least as a, as, a, as an aspect of modernity, and that's really where I kind of want to uh, focus a little bit. And whereas I think that what you talked about with the uh, the ideas of duty and responsibility coming from the original uh, form of the word, uh, we come to see it more as almost as a burden <laughs> uh, yeah. in this kind of, in this era of modernism. And so you're talking about really one of the structures. Of modernism, and you see it over and over, not only in literature but art and film. And so, I'll probably be talking a lot about Kafka today, uh, and I think that's entirely, <laughs> entirely appropriate. I am a, a, if not a one-trick pony, then probably a two or three-trick pony. And so, if I've mentioned him before in this podcast, that's probably why. Um, but um, it just as like buildings and landscapes, like uh, the cities uh, that we have, we have um, uh, a mechanical a mechanically kind of organized life uh, in it's sort of herding people into their roles in society. And the office, I think is, is not unrelated to this. Um, I'm actually just, as I'm saying that I'm thinking about the opening to the old, uh, a gangster movie with James Cagney, The Public Enemy. I don't know if you've seen this uh, this old, this great old film, but the, the first images after the opening credits are of uh, city streets and they're very linear. And what's notable about it are the people are herded into these very straight lines, bumping into each other through these very kind of restricted spaces through which they're allowed to move basically in the streets. And I think that that gangster film uh is as much a critique of of modernism as, as it is uh is about gangsters <laughs> and and so and and in the same way i think that a lot of the um uh images of offices take on that same kind of herding uh imagery uh that you see is particularly in art um now as far as the kind of forces that i think of as as leading to this social change um outside of the kind of the realm of ideology um but Uh, if you just sort of look at technology uh, you have Mm -hmm. the advent of telephones and telegraphs which means you can have sort of support staff for the the fac factory in spaces dedicated just to that support staff they don't have to be on the floor of the factory Mm -hmm. anymore because of these means of communications and this is i mean obviously there are efficiency reasons for that But it also has the effect of um, sectioning people off into smaller and smaller roles uh, with not only within the company, but within society. And they're, in a sense, sort of herded into their particular little job that's uh, a small part of the vast machine that they're really a part of. And so uh, the accountants uh, work in a certain floor and the people who are salesmen where they have offices, they work in a certain kind of – been. And and this is also uh, very, I think, um, interesting when you talk about the, the role of sort of gender roles uh, in society, because this is where you have secretaries uh, come up, and this is, becomes a, a feminized sort of job, and you have the secretary pool, and the secretaries all sort of sit together and do their typing and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and this is, of course, something that is uh, uh, taken up in art over and over, but... In terms of the modern era, I really do see it as both a, a function of economic activity as well as sort of ideologies about uh, about economic idea or uh, ideologies about uh, a person's you know role in society. Uh, and particularly, it's important when you think about uh, modernism.
0: So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well, especially when you look at skylines and you think about um, you think about medieval skylines. Uh, dominated by, um, the edifice of the church or the edifice of the state, what you can see from blocks away is, is the, the spire of a cathedral or, you know, you know, your local earl's castle or whatever. Um, what defines skylines now are these, are the massive rectangles of industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and not even industry, but of the bookkeeping, the bookkeeping of industry.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Right
0: the industry is in the factories on the parts of town that the people who work on those skyscrapers don't go to. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: Or continents that they only go to for vacation.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, one thing though that, um, I, I think is interesting, interesting in this. And, and I, 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 I like the trend, the, the way that you guys are, are locating, um, the normalcy of the office and something that's something that's in modernity. Mm-hmm. But, um, some of it does have, uh, you know, earlier roots. You know, if you look at someone like Chaucer, um, you know, who spends a good chunk of his career, not as a super famous poet, but as a government bureaucrat working Mm -hmm. either for the London port authority or as clerk of the works, um, his job, his governmental job is basically bookkeeping, keeping records of, um, you know, imports and exports or keeping track of the budgets of the different, you know, um, whatever uh, labor or work projects are being done for the government, you know, Chaucer's keeping track of that. He's keeping the books. Mm -hmm. Um, But what happens when you have big independent industries doing all of this labor that then produces data that requires analysis, then you have you know, just the, the the proliferation of bookkeeping that ends up being what offices do. Um, you know and, and it makes me think of you know that well there there's a reason why we why we talk about clerical collars and clerical work, and the people who wear the mm-hmm. collars aren't necessarily the people who are doing that work we describe that way because you know, there is a point in the Middle Ages where the the people who are literate and capable of that kind of record keeping are the clergy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, so there's you know some of these things have deep roots, but then um, the modernity, as you guys have pointed out, ends up proliferating in particular ways. Um, yeah, and,
2: and to and to branch off of that just a little bit, it makes me think of, um, you know, in terms of just trying to. Uh, create some meaning for your life. If you have a job that is 12 levels of support towards the thing that's actually being made, uh, it's really easy to imagine if no one did my job, who would notice, right? <laughs> if I'm the person <laughs> collecting data or analyzing the data that someone else collected about a sale that someone else did about something else that they was uh, selling something that someone else built. Uh, I mean, at some point, uh, it does have, I think, kind of spiritual consequences for a human just to think of to to try and uh, think of their work as being meaningful. And I guess uh, this is uh, this is fresh on my mind, obviously, from my first podcast. But uh, this idea of a person's work as supposedly being more than just an an income but a calling is somewhat compromised by the idea of an office when everybody seems so replaceable
0: Mm -hmm. right or when the 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 fruits of their labor are so intangible yeah um yeah one one thing that uh, you started talking about danny i'd like to to get into a little bit more, you're, uh, evoking the images of, of people being channeled in straight lines on the streets. And it makes me think about not just what an office does, but also thinking about the office as a kind of environment or an ecosystem in which the physical space is part of what, um, sort of creates the space, so to speak. Um, Most people who work in offices don't rhapsodize about the beauty and comfort of their setting. I don't know if you gentlemen have noticed that. Um, But if my office isn't supposed to be beautiful or comfortable, what is the goal of that physical space? And how does it achieve that goal? You want to take this one up, Nathan? Or at least start it?
1: Yeah, I can start it up. I mean, one of the things that an office really kind of illustrates nicely is the... um, I'm going to call it invisible just because I forget the phrase that he uses, but the invisible and seemingly consensual networks of power that Michel Foucault talks about so nicely. Mm. Uh, the office is not a place where you get locked in with steel bars and padlocks, uh, but it is a place that serves as a cage of sorts simply because, I mean, the physical space as well as the cultural expectations and, of course, those two things are part of a network of influence, uh, really sort of shape the way that you imagine your world. Uh, hmm. so, so sliding laterally from uh, Foucault over to Heidegger for a moment, uh, you know, the equipment that is ready to hand in an office gives shape to a certain order of existence. Uh, so for instance, rows of identical doors are part of that world. Uh, the ready, available, ready availability of writing equipment is part of that world. Uh, you know, the very clearly labeled sections of the giant machine that is the modern company, part of that world. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, the, the idea that uh, you have a very segmented, very mechanized, uh, very clearly labeled order of existence there is precisely the point. Uh, The people in an office uh, are not there for their, for recreation, to put it briefly, Uh, but rather they are there to serve the purposes of the larger organism. And the way that an office does that is with lots of right angles, with lots of blank walls, with lots of very clearly segmented and very clearly labeled spaces. Um, Mm -hmm. Danny, I, you know, that, that's what I imi- initially think of when I think about the physical space of an office. What else would you add?
2: Well, that idea of Foucault and the, the invisibility of, of power structures, I mean, that, that's, I think, really sums it up greatly. And and it, it's obviously, I, I promised to talk about Kafka, the, the sort of uh, faceless bureaucracy that his characters often face are very often um, office-related. one, One of the more powerful images of this kind of dehumanized idea of an office that you guys are talking about is in the orson wells version of the trial it's like the early 60s um it's a very strange movie i don't know that i would recommend it but um it's got this amazing image of uh, anthony perkins uh, walking across this office pool and there's, there's this sort of truck shot following him across and it's this vast row of desks and as it zooms out it's just like a football field full of desks lined up very symmetrically it's and it, and and it's it's chillingly inhuman and, uh, and, and, and demoralizing if, to look at this image of what an office is doing to people. Like these are no longer people, they are other machines sitting at other machines, uh, doing work now. And, and, and so that invisibility is, that is what is expected of them as people and all sort of individuality flies out the window. And you mentioned a few things about, um, expecting writing utensils and that or that sort of thing, but we also get the idea of of business casual and and forms of dress that, that become appropriate for these workplaces uh, that Mm -hmm. really do kind of intrude upon the, uh, the uh, the individual in any sort of some form of um, idea of a human outside of its workplace, his, his or her workplace. And so um, now I, I feel like um, this topic is, it's right up my alley um, of being sort of depressed about the world, and I and I want. To
1: sort of, uh, <laughs> Danny, is that a topic or a disposition?
2: This is maybe just an attitude. Yes, um, um, and, and so I'm already with my students this semester asking them what in the world they're doing in college. It's also meaningless anyway. But uh, um, I do want to kind of make some room to rescue a little bit of. Uh, uh, the potential for some sort of reco- uh, the recovery of the human in the office space. Now, I have uh, done other things before teaching, and uh, for a while I was working for this, uh, in a temporary fashion, this this bank that had some sort of legal issue that was going on, and they needed, they had two computer systems, And the information, they needed information from one to speak to the other, but those computers wouldn't talk. So that's what I was for. And so my job was to sit in a cubicle every day and make printouts of all the the digital information uh, that that these two computer systems had. And we had to sort of collate them so that people could uh, then analyze them. And talk about what David was talking about before, Feeling your work is, is utterly removed from any sense of reality <laughs> and meaning that was my life at that point um, and, and stupidly just mundane tasks and, and like I can't not think of what in the world am I doing this for um, it'd be better to pay somebody to invent a program to happen but they didn't do that there was me to print things out. Um, but in that same place where other people were doing equally or more uh, mundane and, and insipid tasks that I was doing, they sort of made a home out of their cubicles right and, and there is a, a tendency of, of of bringing something of the person uh, into that depersonalized space of the office. There was one woman there who was into uh, like civil war reenactments and if you know anybody that's into that that's all they think about uh, but this person is no is no different and and her whole dec- cubicles full of civil war memorials and photos of her at battle sites and that sort of thing. And, uh, and so I found that to be, you know, it's not my thing. And, uh, but it was also sort of heartwarming in that people are trying, there's a human need to rescue humanity for some of these like dehumanized places. And it happens every day. And this is where, you know, you have office birthday parties and, and you have people who sort of make it part of their job in an unofficial capacity, to make it as family-like as they can in these office spaces, so there is, I mean, a little hope for humanity here. In it. There is a sense that, <laughs> that we need to fight uh, for, to maintain uh, some of the human dignity in these dehumanized spaces. Um, but yeah, uh, so that that's uh, my little nod to optimism. <laughs>
0: Wait, oh, okay, we should we should occasionally nod to optimism. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm gonna be negative again. <laughs> um, I, I don't know if you guys were following this. A, a lot of people I know were, were linking this on, uh, Facebook a few weeks ago. Um, and we, we were actually having a conversation about this in my own office building, a rather impassioned one out in the hall, actually, um, about the air conditioning, mm-hmm. which, um, apparently air conditioning is sexist or, or something like that. Um, <laughs> Uh, and certainly a mode of oppression. Everyone seemed to agree upon that. <laughs> um, uh, what is uh, did you guys remember this this uh, this particular hot topic of the day from a little from a couple weeks ago?
1: Yeah, if I can start summarizing it, I mean it was a pair <laughs> of uh, articles that came out. You know, I, I like David. I saw them online rather than in print media. But basically, making what I thought I was a pretty sensible claim that, uh, whereas women tend to have seasonal wardrobes, you know, they have mm-hmm. spring clothes and summer clothes and autumn clothes and winter clothes, uh, men, and they were talking about the office. What I thought of is in church, dear heavens. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, that this is one of those things that just drives me nuts about Georgia is that, you know, evangelical Protestants in Georgia insist on wearing wool suits to church in July. Uh, and, you know, predictably because they have this, you know, new technological wonder, uh, that allows them to alter the climate of a space. They crank that AC up, uh, so that, you know, it's 65 degrees inside in the middle of July in Georgia. (laughs) So I'll, I'll, I'll admit David. I mean, I, I, I could, I, I, you know, we are talking, uh, in an audiological format, but I could actually uh, imagine your tongue in your cheek as you're introducing this. Uh, Personally, I think the women have the more reasonable case here. Now, I mean, to turn it into a species of sexism and, you know, make it a sort of conspiracy thing, I think is not nearly Foucaultian enough. Uh, You know, after I just now went Foucault the space. I mean, I, I think that, you know, this idea of, you know men are in this, you know, intentional conspiracy to make women cold. Well, no, it's just that they've got this unspoken expectation that makes them wear wool suits in July in Georgia. And therefore they say, well, my body is uncomfortable doing this, but I must do this. So therefore I will use this technological wonder to make things cold instead of saying, boy, what a stupid expectation. Maybe I'll wear some short sleeves.
2: Well, but I think that's the Foucaultian nature of this. This is where I'll sort of stand up for the use of the term of sexism. Um, <laughs> I, I, if, you, if you conceive of sexism as a, a, just a, a system of the world that needs to be reflected upon in which sort of male preferences are just encoded in an unknowing way into the culture. Um, mm-hmm. then maybe it's just a phrase that those guys should be reflecting on the fact, maybe I shouldn't be wearing my wool suits like you're saying, but I think that that's the invisibility uh, of, of that you're talking about. Right, now I right. missed most, I, I missed most of that conversation actually. I, I've, <laughs> I've been madly preparing for class here and I'm living right. in Pennsylvania now on top of a mountain. And so the heat doesn't really bother me anymore. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but the, uh, um, The the article I saw actually took a different slant on the conversation. I think it was on NPR. There was a uh, 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 – basically the temperature was decided almost arbitrarily by someone many, many years ago about sort of body rhythms and and, and these sorts Ah, of things. Ah, yeah. And the the temperature – I mean it's just bad science basically that has dictated Ah, what a normal temperature is. (laughs) And so it was just sort of lazy, (laughs) lazy statistics there. Um, that were that were mm-hmm. being put into place that we're still you know using today and so that I mean I kind of elides some of the, the the sexist overtones of the argument but um, I I I don't think we should entirely dismiss the sexism of that yeah. of that practice right uh, right but
1: and and I grant your point Danny you're right about that that sexism often is an invisible thing I guess what I was pointing to is internet discourse's tendency to take yes. what are <laughs> invisible networks of power. And assign yes. to them very willful conspiratorial <laughs> motives. <laughs>
2: yes, yeah, it's, that's what my it, class on conspiracies is all about this semester. Yes, that's that's exactly excellent. right. Yes.
0: Yeah. Locate this thing in a certain in a particular smoking room at a particular you know, point in time. <laughs> well, yeah,
1: precisely, precisely. That that's what I was trying to combat. Right. Your points about the invisible networks of power is is perfectly valid. Otherwise, mm. we wouldn't have office buildings and churches that are sixty degrees in July in Georgia. <laughs> And yes, I'm going to keep ranting
0: about that. <laughs> See, I, I I liked your point about suits because my guess is that most of the men wearing wool suits in July, most of them aren't doing because doing that because they they really really love wool suits.
1: hmm.
0: Um, but that there's an expectation they feel they need to meet. But you could also mm-hmm. flip that around and say, isn't it interesting that uh. The women feel a certain degree of compulsion that their wardrobe ought to change with the seasons. Um, see that
1: makes more sense to me. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, that's more but than I mean, me. then again, I mean, anyone who's ever met me in person knows that I pretty much wear long sleeve shirts if I'm going to be in a room with the person who bought me that shirt as a gift.
0: <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. No, I I, I just, it it just seemed to me that, you know, one of the things that, one of those invisible things lurking under the surface Uh that wasn't being examined was the sort of unspoken expectations about the way men and women dress, and that the way men and women dress were conflicting, and therefore there was a fight over a thermostat. Right. (laughs) Well, that actually ended up being much more interesting than I thought it was. Um... (laughs) Well, let's transition to lit because all of us have English on our PhDs, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so in particular, I want to just move from the from the environment to talk about the characters of the office and just two particular character types that we often encounter in you know kind of fictional or or uh, artistic representations of the office, which mm-hmm. are the tyrannical manager or boss figure and the beleaguered employee. Mm -hmm. So we'll start with the first one and pointing, aiming this one at you, Nathan. Um, Of course. Of course. Um, And and, and given your, you know, given your 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 predilection towards the Christmas carol expressed in previous episodes. um, Christmas carol. (laughs) Would I be correct in seeing Ebenezer Scrooge as some kind of distant ancestor of Dilbert's pointy-haired boss? Absolutely. And what's fascinating about
1: Ebenezer Scrooge is of course, because he is a character who is so frequently and so interestingly appropriated for films and for cartoons and for, you know, Muppet versions, uh, you actually get, you know, different versions of the evil boss in the pre-conversion Ebenezer Scrooge. So, I mean, in the text of the Carol, and I'll call it that rather than a short story, even though I read it as a short story, um, you get a man who is a miser. uh, And so, you know, his great besetting vice is that he refuses to spend money. So you get an amplification of the office uh, to the point where he won't even heat the place. So I guess it's the, the opposite of the air conditioned (laughs) office space. Um, and, And, you know, basically, you know, because he is the tyrant of that small location uh, you know, he won't heat the place. And really, in the, the text of A Christmas Carol, you know that's one of the major things that you notice about him is that he's such a penny-pinching cheapskate. Now, what's fascinating, mm-hmm. and I'll try to make this brief because we did a whole episode on A Christmas Carol a few Christmases ago, um, is that when you get to the Alistair Sims version, you get a whole backstory uh, where Ebenezer Scrooge actually acquires the property where his office is in a hostile takeover against Fezziwig, um, which is just utterly fascinating because, you know, there in the 1950s, uh, you know, when you really do get the rise of, you know, big multinational corporations that we think of now, you get Ebenezer Scrooge as the hostile takeover guy. And then in the Hmm. 80s, when George C. Scott becomes Scrooge, uh, he becomes less of a miser simply and he becomes more of a gordon gecko figure uh Hmm. you know who probably could have a much bigger office and for that reason in that movie you don't see him nearly as often in his little counting shop you see him out in the stock exchange in london and that becomes his office space so it's Hmm. one of those things Hmm. where i mean the evolution of scrooge really does follow the evolution of the office um and i'll admit i i you know when I try to think of uh, Patrick Stewart as Scrooge, the geography of that movie doesn't really occur to me just because I'm, I'm, I'm geeking out on the fact that John Luke Picard is doing scenes with Jimmy McNulty. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, Danny, I don't know. I mean, do you remember the Patrick Stewart Scrooge or is there anything else about Scrooge you'd want to put in there?
2: um no I, I the one i mean the i actually like the muppet one the most um uh-huh. and, uh, and, and that they give the backstory i mean the, of his like love life i mean i think that that's the the you don't see that a lot in a lot of the uh adaptations of scrooge he's just sort of this this bad person who becomes good but there's the sort of good to bad to back to good uh that um, is emphasized emphasized more in the Muppet movie than I've seen in some other versions. And so, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not an expert on that sh- on that, on that, that story though. So
1: most of the movies do something with that, but you're right that the Muppet movie does more with it than the others.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a matter of sort of emphasis, but
0: mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I, you, you were right to, uh, point in pointing out the, you know, Scrooge keeping the office cold and the way that he controls the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, for the for the the purpose of, you know, the what he sees as the productivity of the company, um, which apparently, you know, the productivity of the company does not involve actually keeping Bob Cratchit's fingers unfrozen, um, <laughs> but also the the conversation about um, uh, Bob Cratchit wanting days off of work, mm-hmm. and how much loss is there, you know, when employees take days off and his his discussions, uh, the the way Ebenezer Scrooge talks about what he sees as the lazy predilection of employees, um, it, a, a lot of these things, it, it seems to me, they end up getting picked up um, by you know depictions of bosses. So you know, Scrooge really does. Uh, I, I can't think of an earlier template than him mm-hmm. for that particular character type.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well speaking of Bob Cratchit and his frozen fingers, um, uh, beleaguered employees, I think are also one of the major, uh, one of the major character types and, you know, Bob Cratchit definitely beleaguered. Um, I also think of Melville's Bartleby. Um, and I'll pitch this in one at you, Danny. Um, and you know, if either one of them seems interesting, but it seems like Kafka is also on your plate as well. So what what beleaguered employees (laughs) would you like us to, to, to look at?
2: Well, Cratchit is the template for this, the uh, artistic exploration of unhappy office life, right? Uh, in, in exactly the ways that that Nathan uh, and you have been talking about. Now, the one thing that is also interesting about that story is that Scrooge sort of like, and his his power over him isn't simply in the office, right? He sort of enters into the domestic sphere and, and also um, causes hate chaos there too. And so this uh, automatically, when I, when I thought of that, I was thinking of the metamorphosis. I mean, this is, uh, when the Joseph or, you know, uh, Gregor Samso wakes up, uh, as a bug, his first mm. thought isn't, Oh, good Lord, I'm a bug. What happened here is like, Oh, I'm going to get <laughs> in trouble at work. Right. You know, I'm like, mm-hmm. There's, they're going to be, what are we going to do for money? Uh, yeah, and so, uh, and then sure enough, the first time he's ever been, uh, at all late his boss shows up at the door right and to ask what in the world's going on where is this man <laughs> who's late for work uh and, and so i mean it's a, a comic sort of version of it but uh i mean kafka really i mean he's writing at a later time than than dickens of course and and in the kind of aftermath of some of the uh dehumanizing aspects of industrialization that we sort of began this podcast with and and, and what he's Really painting there is a picture of a domestic life that is already ruined at the beginning because of uh, the people's employment. I mean uh, Mm. Gregor in that story is is working pay off a debt of his father and 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 so Everybody's life is utterly miserable because of the relationship with the company uh, that, that takes place in that office and the be freaks and it's and thought that Gregor's not there. The company's wondering what's going on. And then the boss sees a giant cockroach on the stairs and it's hilarious. But, um, but yeah, I feel like the, that, uh, it, that disappearance of the border between the workspace and the domestic space here uh, is one thing that the, the Ebenezer Scrooge and Bob Cratchit relationship really kind of sets into motion and, and, and people in much more frightening ways later on take that up. And I think that uh, some of the things you want to talk about uh, later on, I think really w- will give us a chance to to explore that that dissolved boundary a little bit as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Awesome.
0: Anything you, uh, you want to say about beleaguered employees, Nathan?
1: I prefer not to. <laughs> Sorry. I, 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 I'm sitting here. I really am saying a silent prayer that Danny won't steal that joke. So thank you for not stealing it, Danny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, yes. I, I, I think the true terror of Bartleby the Scrivener is that within the universe of that story, the mechanization of the workplace actually devours a human being, and mm. by the time you meet Bartleby, uh, he isn't, he hasn't been human for some time, uh, and so, I mean, when the, when the office space moves down the road, uh, he's simply discarded like a part that's broken down. Uh, and you know, I mean, that's, that, that, that's a true, like I said, I mean, it's the terror of the story, uh, is that your narrator and I, and I believe the narrator is the boss in that story, right? I should have looked at it before we, before we do this episode, but, uh, you know, I mean, one of the things I always point up to my students is that, you know, the boss goes to church and then comes back and has to deal with a human phenomenon that, church life just doesn't prepare you for because he just doesn't have the theological categories to deal with a soul that's been melted away. Mm. So, I mean, it's really, I mean, there's a lot going on in that story with that culture and with the notion that human beings have an immortal soul, uh, that's below the surface and, you know, rewards some rereading and some careful reading. Uh, and I mean, the more you think about it, the more horrifying the story becomes.
0: When the uh, there there's there's few things that I think better capture the kind of I don't know the, the 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 erosion of self that seemingly meaningless work does than um well than 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 Bartleby having come from the dead letter office.
1: Oh yeah. Oh gosh. How could I forget that? Yeah. Roll with it.
0: George. Yeah. <laughs> well, and no. I mean, it's it's just that. I mean, it's it's just that point. I mean, that that that's really the only thing you ever really learn about his life before. And yeah, I mean, just just that notion that your your job is sorting out the things that go nowhere, literally, mm-hmm. literally the things that go nowhere. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah, and Melville's meditation on that, I think, is something that's, you know, it remains fresh. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> um, well, we need to we need to get to the need, need to get to our pop culture because I feel like we're uh, uh, possibly straining at the bit here. I've already invoked <laughs> Dilbert. Um <laughs> mm-hmm. but cer- certainly there are other pop culture depictions of office life that have struck chords um with offices. We might even have coffee mugs with these people on them. Who knows?
2: <laughs> um
0: I'm thinking about well, you know, for me, uh a film like Office Space or uh TV comedies like The Office, but you know, that's far from the only television depiction of office life. Mm-hmm. Um So, how do these versions of the office as an environment lead us to think about it and feel about it? And why do we connect to them so much? Nathan?
1: Well, we connect to them because so many of our workplaces have become offices. And, like I said, this is one of those things that bugs me that, you know, most of the churches I've visited don't have preacher studies, but they have offices. Uh, so, I mean, it becomes an expectation that, you know, what happens in there is roughly analogous to what happens at the HR department at Canon Printing, um, rather than being a place of, well, study, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, Office Space, I mean, this is uh film from the mid-90s, as, as listeners probably know, uh, and it, it, it's one of those movies that really what I remember best about it is not really believing the ending of it uh, because, and, and it's a 20-year-old movie, so I'm not worried about spoilers right now. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the the main character, uh, through a an act of fraud, which I'll get to here in a little bit, ends up embezzling a ton of money from his company uh, and through a series of hijinks, uh, ends up, one, not having the money, and two not having to go to jail for the crime because the place goes up in flames. And then the sort of happy ending to the movie is that he takes a construction job and is working outside rather than working in the office. And I always think, yeah, until he gets his first construction paycheck and then he's going to go back to programming. Um, (laughs) But, you know, with that aside, I mean, it's funny because some of the things that you two have been talking about already really play out in this movie. Uh, So, for instance, the mode by which he perpetrates this fraud uh, is by finding out that there is a bureaucratic loophole in the HR programming that basically shuttles fractions of pennies away from people's paychecks into a slush fund of sorts. And he, you know, uses his programming mojo to divert those funds into his own personal bank account. Now, the first time I watched this, uh, I was watching it with uh, Mary. I, well, I wasn't married yet to her uh, and her friend Harriet. And I said, Oh my gosh, it's Superman 3. And uh, <laughs> of course, next thing I know, the characters on the screen say, Dude, this is just like Richard Pryor in Superman 3. <laughs> I said, Ah, oh, I've just been trapped because, you know, the, <laughs> the b- because there is such a uh, mechanization of things, people are importing meaning from old and badly made superhero movies (laughs) to give their lives narrative structure. Uh, Mm. So, I mean, there's a ton of stuff like that. Uh, You know, of course, I mean, the the cast of personalities are humorous precisely because they are stunted. You've got Milton, who obsesses over staplers and other seemingly Mm -hmm. unimportant objects. You've got the boss, whose voice I won't imitate right now because everyone does that imitation, and I'm just going to refrain Um, and you know, in, in all of these things, the reason that it resonates with us is because we all see these sort of stunted personalities and I'm going to go ahead and I mean, say that, you know, it's probably a dialectic, uh, I would say that the office as an environment probably finds those characteristics in the people who walk into it and amplifies them so that they're both a product (laughs) of the place and they are brought into the place at the same time. I'm talking too much, Danny. What do you got?
2: No, that's it. that last thing you said was really interesting, but I have to think on that for a little bit. But no, um in, in a lot of ways that movie is kind of like it reminds me in,
1: uh,
2: formally of a Christmas story. We talked about that I,
1: Oh I yeah.
2: last last Christmas. And that it's episodic like and and people remember the jokes and those jokes become Mm -hmm. like little lived experiences themselves so people do the "Mm, yeah uh, that'd be great sort of (laughs) uh, invitation (laughs) right Um, and and the 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 stapler bit and and all of the sort of bits of it kind of live apart from the film itself Uh, and I think because it captures uh, like you said Something an exaggerated version of people 's real frustrations that we 've kind of been talking about that that come out of these environments that we've been um, exploring now for me, the most memorable aspect of the movie is the fact that he becomes successful within the company after he, there's like a mishap in a, a hypnotist session. <laughs> and, and he, uh, if you can believe such a thing as possible, and, and he uh, uh, goes to work utterly not caring about his job anymore. And, and so he, he loses the anxiety of, of that Bob Cratchit might have in his job. And, and so what he goes with is just Utter bald-faced honesty, and and he's a terrible employee. He like destroys the cubicle walls to open up a window space. He breaks the dress code. He misses meetings. He ignores the boss's edicts. And um, the uh, they have these consultants there, uh, the Bobs, uh, Bob and Bob, great. <laughs> uh, and and they uh uh like really appreciate this guy because of this, and they they think, well, this guy's management material, and uh because <laughs> he, he, he's so sort of destructive, and so he ends up uh escalating in his position because of his, his his lack of uh care anymore, and so that to me is like the the funniest sort of like uh i don't know paradox that the movie you know gives you to think about um but and also like before, it's not in an entirely unlikable environment. People have sort of friendships there. And I think it comes through this sort of shared suffering that they all sort of have the copy machine that it says there's a paper jam when there is no paper jam and all that sort of thing. Um, and frankly, that moment at the, uh, it towards the middle of the movie, uh, when they take the copy machine out to the field into some gangster rap, they beat it into uh, a thousand pieces. (laughs) Um, like everybody loves that scene. Right. And, and and (laughs) yeah. And so I feel like, uh, it not only addresses some of the problems of being a human in a place like this, but it also finds a way to actually do that. And and, and so I think that uh, that's probably why it it's become this cult, cult classic. That I think many, many more people have seen it in uh, its sort of uh, DVD form than ever saw it at the theater. It's one of those oh, yeah, movies that yeah. – that became yep. much more popular by word of mouth for years, um, and, and so because people can find a moment to relate to, um, and so. But also the thing about um, you were talking about the juxta- the, the the dialectic, um, it, but there is a sense that the your job at an office does end up, whatever the process, in sticking people into types, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you see this uh, in. Uh, uh, lots of uh, portrayals of office life people there. You have the kind of chirpy uh, person who's annoying and you have the, the complainers and you have all these, these types that you can recognize little visions of in these movies. And I think that's what makes them so really important. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Yep. Well, and then you have Milton who, I I don't know, I, for whatever reason, I always associate him with Bartleby. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That 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 poor little shell of a man who's beaten who's been beaten so far that all he has left is it's his stapler. Oh, <laughs> yeah. that's right. I, I actually <laughs> forgot that plot
1: point that they fire him, but he won't leave. <laughs> well, so no, no, really they have fired.
2: <laughs> yes. They have fired him, but uh, th- there was a mix of bureaucratic a computer glitch and he was still getting his paycheck and nobody told him he was fired. So eventually they <laughs> fixed the glitch and they stopped paying him, but he, he keeps showing up after that. But yeah, yeah. so
0: it's even worse than that. <laughs> Well, any uh, we're we're nearing I think the in the end of our hour, but are there any other any other pop culture offices we want to tip a hat to before we go on? I figured office space would probably get the best love anyway. Oh
2: yeah, yeah. Well, the show, The Office, which I I didn't watch many seasons of. My wife watched the whole thing. She became very invested in the kind of uh, romance that was going on in that that show. But um, <laughs> the. Uh, uh, and I only quit watching because I was just too busy. But uh, that also, in the same way, makes a kind of loving environment out of this unloving place. And I think that's one of the reasons people like to watch it. If it were utterly. Depressing people wouldn't watch it, right? I mean people mm-hmm. like are living that life already They don't want to be depressed by the life they're living. They want to have a vision of it as, as Somewhat redemptive and and there is I mean for all the personality conflicts in that show um, There's a sense of a family atmosphere that, that comes out of it and, and So, mm-hmm.
1: And the other one that I would bring up is a, a series that I, I Really enjoyed in spite of the fact that I really shouldn't have which is ugly Betty Uh, Because it brings together the world of international fashion with all of the grand flamboyant personalities with Mm -hmm. the office environment, which is entirely mind numbing. And then combine (laughs) those two with this undercurrent of these people who have dreams of being journalists, but they're employed by this fashion magazine. (laughs) And so, I mean, it's another one where, I mean, first of all, it's just gloriously funny. Uh, but it's also got some really interesting stuff going on with, with the day-to-day environment of The Office combined with the sort of fantasy world of high fashion. Mm.
0: I I think of... Uh, uh, well, okay, this is mainly because my wife, I'm not a TV watcher, but, but my wife um, is... Uh, she watches uh, Friends a lot. She has... <laughs> yeah she pretty much has all the seasons and and that's that's her that's her uh her television comfort food when you know clothes need folding or whatever
1: Mm -hmm.
0: uh with the result that i have seen an awful lot of chandler being at the office um (laughs) i mean that the thing one of the a number of things define that character but one of those things is that he is the guy who works in an office and the the thing that stands out perhaps most to me is one particular episode in which um, when enormous stakes are on the line, uh, none of his friends can remember what he does for a living.
1: <laughs> oh, I,
0: yeah. I, they I, don't... <laughs> I've actually seen
1: that episode in particular. Okay.
0: Okay, they don't know what his job is. Um, and I, I don't know, um, but I imagine it's, there's a, probably a lot of us who've worked in you know, kind of office sort of settings in, in which our, our, our job was connected to some arcane thing to do with particular data that no one could remember. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, if 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 you've ever if you've ever had that experience of being unable to explain your job to other people or them being unable to remember it, yeah, and, and that's it's Chandler Bing obsessing with the weekly estimated net usage statistics or the weenus, yeah. which, <laughs> cares, which which she cares about a great deal. Yeah. Well, we we should probably go a little bit classical before we end things. Um, Just a brief question, Nathan, and you can put on your Dante hat for it, which I imagine you probably have a Dante hat. (laughs) Anyway, so is an office hell or is it purgatory? (laughs) Based on all we've said thus far...
1: (laughs) Well, here is the thing, uh, and I'm going to take a a step from Dante into George Bernard Shaw and through him into C.S. Lewis. Excellent. Uh, I think that (laughs) The Office, uh, within some narratives, is inferno because there is no escape from it. There is no point to it. Uh, Mm. People are forced to do uncomfortable things for no good reason and moreover, they all line up to go there without any guards making them do it. Oof. On the other <laughs> hand, and this is where you know you, I'm, I'm going towards uh, Shaw and Lewis, on the other hand, I think that depending on how we situate that environment, it can stand to be a purgatory. It can be a place that educates our desires, uh, mm. both through showing us how things can go wretchedly wrong, as in the reign of vices in Dante's purgatory. Mm-hmm. And also, if we keep our eyes and our ears open, we can see genuinely good human existence happening, even in the office. And so it can also be the whip of virtue as Dante presents it. So the answer is yes.
0: Excellent. Well, and and, and as in Dante, it seems as if the difference between hell and purgatory is mainly the disposition of the soul receiving the lash.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Ah, oh, well, grow stronger, dear listeners. Grow stronger. <laughs> well, I- any final Looks like thoughts? Like someone has
2: a case of the Mondays. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Them.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, you can have a case of the Mondays even on the Tuesdays. Um, any final thoughts we want to leave our listeners for? Uh, leave our listeners with on this particular topic, Danny.
2: Um, I you know I was thinking about this uh, earlier today. I'm still moving into my new office and you know decorating it and stuff. And I was thinking about the difference between the the function of my office and these these cubicle lives that we've been talking about. And, and I feel like the academic office, the physical place, as Nathan's talking, the geographic location, um, is maybe a, a a more perfected idea of it because it's more personal and it's not meant. To be dehumanized, but it's there so that you can meet with students and, and, and sort of personally uh, encourage them to engage with their education, uh, to make it a, a more kind of personal, meaningful thing. And so, it's not just a place to grade papers. And in fact, I rarely do grade. I do. I rarely do the the mundane sort of things in my office. Actually, for me, it's it's more about uh, it's a meeting place with people. So, uh, if there are kind of good I, versions of offices uh, perhaps I have one. That's my goal at least. Awesome. Nathan?
1: What I would say kind of tails off of what I said with, with Dante and that is that when you talk about any kind of environment be it the office or whether it be the factory floor or whether it be the farm or whether it be any place of human industry, places where you do stuff one of the things that I try always to keep in mind is that it's always potentially good and potentially bad. And it's both of those in any given moment. And if Mm. you lose sight of either one of those, you don't get the truthful picture of the place. Mm. So one of the things that, you know, we, we've kind of hammered on is that the office has the diabolical potential to erase personality and to eliminate individuality. On the other hand, you know, as these office comedies tend to show us, And really other dramas, too. I mean, you know, you think of uh, a show that isn't, you know, first and foremost a comedy like The West Wing. You really don't spend a whole lot of time in public places of political discourse. Most of that show happens in people's offices. And, you know, although that show is too optimistic, you know, Trip Fuller and I talked about that when we were talking about, you know, its evil twin house of cards. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it it is a vision at the very least of a place where human possibility lurks if you can just open your eyes and see it. So uh, remember that, you know, the potential for good and the potential for bad. Uh, it, it, it's not like Dagobah where there's a cave where the dark side lives. The dark side is everywhere. <laughs> and also the force is alive everywhere. So to go from theology to star Wars, and back into office space. That's what I've got. Grubs, deliver us from this silliness.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Um, I, I, I think I'm just gonna just gonna play off of you, um, and then and then take an angle. Um, remembering remembering the potentials for you know for good for good or ill are definitely there. Um, but one of the things that uh, I appreciate that we've kind of brought out is the, the 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 ways in which offices are shaped and offices are run that are meant to pull down the individual distinctiveness of the human um there are ways in which being in this environment or being in an office environment like the kinds we've been talking about is is not good for man's soul. <laughs> yeah. um So in terms of, in in, in terms of health, um, to remember that you, you, you know, if you work in this kind of environment, um, you're a human being, the other people you work with are human beings. And while the kinds of shows and movies we've been talking about, um, can be humorous and it can be easy to start identifying your coworkers as the character, as the caricatures, in the, in the depictions, to remember that they are also human beings who have an identity that's also being pressured by this environment. Um, remember to be a human among humans, even when the mechanism of the environment doesn't want those things. Um, yeah, be kind. Be kind to each other, people. Um, and that's really all I have to say. Just be nice. <laughs> uh, what are we've got on tap for next week who's, who's, who's at the helm is it you Nathan
1: yeah I'm going to take the helm next week and we are going to talk about the platonic dialogue the lock uh, if you want to do a google search for that text it's a uh, lambda alpha key eta sigma
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know this one <laughs>
1: Uh, it, it's one of his shorter dialogues. It's a fun little discussion of what it is to be courageous. Huh. So. Cool beans. we're going to dig into that and see what we find, and uh, that'll be next week.
0: Excellent. Well, uh, dear listeners, you have that to look forward to, as do I. Um, in the meantime, I wish you all... Uh, grand weeks. If you have any particular thoughts in response to this episode, you can email us at thechristianhumanist@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can also post on the show notes to the episode in the comments when they post on our blog at christianhumanist.org. You can also uh, post on our Facebook wall, things of that nature. Be sure to follow what's going on in this and other episodes by following us on Facebook or checking out our blog pretty frequently. Um, as we get into the school year, things are, things are starting to get up and running again. Mm-hmm. So be on the alert. In the meanwhile, I hope that you all uh, have good weeks uh, spent in an office or not, uh, depending on how your lives go. This has been an episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast, a podcast on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. And uh, I will leave you on behalf of uh, Danny Anderson, on behalf of Nathan Gilmore, uh, and myself, David Grubbs, with great advice from Martin Luther. Let your sin be strong, but let your faith be stronger.